Good morning. I'm Peggy. Um, I'm reading from Jonah 4, verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country, that it is why I made haste to flee to Tar Tarshish? For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, Redemption Tucson. My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm not preaching, but I get to introduce who is, and I'm, I'm really excited about that. Um, as was said earlier, uh, we have somebody coming in from Redemption, Tempe, which, save your booze, um, this guy's actually good. So, um, John Crawford, one of the pastors of Redemption, Tempe. I've had the privilege of getting to know John. Um, we got to hang out in Chicago together at a pastor's conference, just at all pastors, meetings that we have at Redemption. If you don't know this, once a month, all the pastors get together to pray, to learn, to grow, to build relationship. And as I've been uh, just pressing more into prayer, there's somebody who's just kind of always been there. Uh, and John even said, he's like, we've been praying a lot together, kind of month after month after month. And so I, I love John. I love his heart. Um, as he was talking to me, just he um, is incredibly gifted, uh, has a ton that to share with us this morning. And I think we're in for a privilege and, and really uh, a really shaping time for us this morning. So um, also another thing we know about John, John uh, also is bivocational. So you're going to notice his hair looks really good because he does that for a living. And also you'll notice his sneakers look really good. I don't know why. He's just really trendy. Uh, so he'll fit in, in in Tucson. So do me a favor. Welcome up, John. Appreciate you, brother. Thank you, man. Well, good morning. It's good to be here. Um, I'm John Crawford, as he just said. I am one of the pastors at Redemption Tempe. Um, I'm married. My wife, Marika, is here as well. And we have three small boys. Um, Wyatt is our oldest. He's six. Jonah, uh, not named after the prophet that we are uh, in this book, and you'll see why today as we preach. Not named after the prophet Jonah, but Jonah, our middle son, uh, is three, and then our youngest, Silas, is 10 months old. And so um, my family's here. Uh, we love Tucson, actually. I know I'm in wildcat country, um, and I'm from Tempe, which means I am from Sun Devil country. Um, but before you throw tomatoes at me, um, I did not go to ASU. So there's my, there's my saving grace coming down here from uh, Tempe. Um, but in reality, I, I love Redemption Tucson. I love the city of Tucson. I love what God is doing here. Um, over the years, have gotten to know Dave really well and also Stephen and really, really love those guys, respect them greatly. Just their godly, humble leadership over, over this congregation is just really, really um, something that I admire and appreciate very much. And so this morning, we are going to be in, uh, in Jonah, obviously, chapter 4. So what we're going to be doing this morning is concluding our series in Jonah. Over the last few weeks, we've been 
trekking through this small, short book, but this book has so much to say to us, to our current context that we find ourselves living in in America. And um, what I want to do, because we are closing the series out today, I realize that maybe it's your first time here today and you have no idea um, where we've been these last couple weeks. Maybe you've been out of town or you've been busy with school, whatever it is, and you've missed a couple weeks. And so I want to briefly recap uh, the book of Jonah. And so what we see in the book of Jonah in the beginning, we see that God calls Jonah to go to this city of Nineveh. And Nineveh is actually the capital city of Assyria. And as you, if you were here last week, you heard Dave kind of talk about Assyria and how brutal and violent the empire of Assyria was. And so God calls Jonah and says, hey, go to Nineveh. I want you to preach to the Ninevites. And Jonah says no. And what does he do? He actually rebels against what God calls him to do, and he flees. And he gets on a ship, and he goes and sails to Tarshish, which is the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. And God, because he does pursue out of his mercy and compassion, he pursues Jonah even in spite of his rebellion, and he sends a storm. And this storm uh, is huge and violent, and the sailors don't know what to do, and so Jonah says, throw me overboard. So the sailors throw him overboard, but once again, because God is compassionate and merciful and pursues his people, he pursues Jonah, and a big fish swallows Jonah. And Jonah finds himself in the belly of this big fish for three days, and what we see in Jonah chapter 2 is that Jonah actually cries out to God, and we see that there's a prayer of submission, and in that prayer of submission, Jonah repents and God has mercy upon him, and Jonah is the recipient of God's mercy, and what happens from there is that this big fish spits Jonah out and vomits him out. And then Jonah goes to Nineveh. He finally goes to Nineveh like God had originally called him to do, but he still doesn't actually want to go to Nineveh. And this is what Dave preached on last week in Jonah chapter 3. He still doesn't actually want to go to Nineveh. And so he kind of begrudgingly goes like a, a child having a temper tantrum, right? He goes, but he preaches the weakest bare minimum sermon in the history of God's people. He goes and he preaches a five-word sermon to the Ninevites, and he doesn't even mention the name of God. But what happens at the end of chapter 3, we see that actually Nineveh, the entire, the entire city, this capital city of Assyria, the entire city repents. We see the king, we see this communal corporate repentance of their sin, and they turn from their evil ways so much so that even the animals are involved in this corporate communal repentance. And at the end of that, what we see is that God actually relents from the judgment that was coming on to the Ninevites. And so, if we were writing Jonah, it seems almost like you should end the book there, right? If you end the book at chapter 3, you get this beautiful story, this kind of redemptive picture of, hey, there's this wayward, rebellious prophet that rejects what God calls him to do, um, repents, goes and does it. Even though he does it begrudgingly, God still shows up, and an entire city 120,000 plus people, as chapter 4 tells us, repent. That should be the end of the book. And if it was, Jonah would be the best prophet in the history of the world, right? But it doesn't. And we're left with chapter 4, which is where we, picked up, where we pick up this morning and where we will conclude our series, that there's a fourth chapter. And 
honestly, it's weird. It doesn't really make much sense um, because of how it ends. It ends very abrupt. There's no resolution to kind of what we find Jonah kind of sitting in. And so we will be begged to ask the question, like, why does this chapter even exist? Why didn't it end at chapter 3? And so if you need a Bible, before we jump in here, um, there's going to be some folks walking down the aisles. Raise your hand if you need a Bible so you can follow along with us this morning. If you do not own a copy of God's Word, please keep this. This is our gift to you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word as we believe that it's the true story of the world that gives meaning and shape to all of life. So, on June 17, 2015, America's attention and emotions were captivated. They were captivated because there was a young man who walked into a church. And this young man walked into a church not with the intention to worship the Lord like we're doing this morning. This young man walked into a church with a pre-planned idea and plan of evil and hatred that was fueled by his own racism. This man was Dylan Roof, and he walked into a church in Charleston, South Carolina, Emmanuel Methodist Episcopalian Church, this historic African-American church, and he walked into this church not to worship the Lord, but actually to carry out a horrific crime of hatred. And what we see is that this church quickly became the scene of a national tragedy, a mass shooting that left nine of its church members dead. Dylan Roof was arrested, and during one of his court hearings, the judge invited all of the family members of those who had been killed to come and actually address Dylan Roof. They could say anything that they wanted to say to him. And I'll never forget the video footage. You can find it online if you haven't seen it. Every one of these family members of the victims who were killed in the Charleston shooting talked to Dylan Roof. And when they talked to him, it's not what we would imagine. Typically, we would think that these family members who had had something so precious, a loved one ripped out of their lives by this horrific act of hate, we would think that the family members, when they had their one chance to talk to him and look at him in the eye, face to face, would say, you deserve this. I hope you rot in prison. I hope you burn in hell, right? But that's not what any one of the family members did. Every single one of the family members that addressed Dylan Roof actually addressed him with a heart of pleading. They actually all pled with him to repent, to repent and to receive the mercy and grace of God. Dylan, we, even though you have taken so much from us and we have this hole in our lives and in our heart, we ask and we plead and beg that you would repent of what you've done to receive God's mercy. They expressed words of forgiveness and they said, even though you have done this, we forgive you. And even if you don't repent, we are praying for you. And we pray that God would have mercy on you. And this was powerful. This was beautiful. So much so that it made ripples through national media about these Christians that said, you have slaughtered family members out of hatred, but we forgive you and we want you to know 
the Lord that we worship. And what we see today when we come to Jonah 4 is that Jonah's posture towards the Ninevites and towards God is actually the exact opposite. That Jonah actually being a prophet, we would think he's going to rejoice that 120,000 people have repented and come to saving faith. But that's not his posture. Jonah does not want the Ninevites to receive the mercy of God. What Jonah wants is for God to judge them. Jonah wants God's justice to come on the Ninevites, and he doesn't want them to receive mercy. And so the main question that, that comes out of Jonah chapter 4 that we must ask ourselves is, are we okay with the reality that God loves our enemies and has mercy on them? It's the main question that Jonah chapter 4 raises. And as we jump into this chapter, we're going to see three things. They should be on the board. The three main points of this passage, what we will see is the toxin of self-righteousness. Excuse me, the toxin of self-righteousness. The patience and pursuit of God's compassion. And lastly, we will see ourselves in the mirror. And so before we dive in here, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, even for this short book of Jonah. Father, even with this seemingly confusing ending, we thank you that this is intentional. We thank you that you have put this in your word to make us wrestle, wrestle with the hard questions. And Father, as we come to this text today, I ask that your spirit would be present with us today, that you would be here, that your spirit would move, Lord, that you would speak through me, that you would remove me as an obstacle, and Father, that you would convict us, that you would encourage us, Lord, that you would show us our need for Jesus, and more than that, that you would stir our hearts and our affections for you. It's in your name we pray, amen. All right, so we're in Jonah chapter 4, let's pick up here in verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. So we've got to ask, even though I kind of summarize, we've got to ask, what displeased Jonah specifically? And in order to know that, we just got to go to the verse prior. At the end of chapter 3, it says this in verse 10. It says, When God saw what they did, the Ninevites, how they repented, and how they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster that he had said would, he would come and do to them. And he did not do it. And so... The Ninevites repent, God relents, and now Jonah is filled with rage. So we see repenting, relenting, and raging, essentially, is what's going on. And so God actually turns from his anger, and here's the irony. Jonah actually becomes angry, right? God, God turns from his anger, and then Jonah actually becomes angry. So verse 2. And Jonah prayed to the Lord, and he said... O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country, that this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish? For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And so... 
what we see is there's another prayer that Jonah chapter 4 actually mirrors Jonah chapter 2, except Jonah's prayer in chapter 2 when he's in the belly of the fish is a prayer of submission. And now what we see is that this prayer, Jonah is actually protesting, that this is a prayer of protest. And what we also see is Jonah finally tells us the reason why he fled in the first place. Up until Jonah, up until chapter 4, we suspect why. Right? We suspect, hey, Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, and we have various reasons, but now Jonah is explicitly stating, this is why I didn't go to Nineveh. And what he actually does is he quotes the very words of God, God's self-revelation from Exodus chapter 34, verses 6. God says the same thing. I will quickly turn there. And this is what God says to Moses at Mount Sinai. God says this about himself. The Lord passed over before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so Jonah is saying, this is why I fled back when I was in my home country. It's because of who you are, God, that Jonah actually wasn't afraid to go to Nineveh because of what the Assyrians might do to him, right? Dave talked about that last week, about how Assyria was the most brutal and violent empire literally without, within the history of the world. When you see the things that they did and what they did in war and the war crimes, Dave talked about how they piled up the corpses, you know, as high as city walls, and, and the things that they would do were absolutely horrific. And so Jonah doesn't not want to go to Nineveh because he's afraid of what the Assyrians might actually do to him. He actually doesn't want to go because of what God will do for them. And so what we see is that Jonah actually knows uh, who God is, right? He's quoting the very words of God, God's self-revelation, and Jonah knows who God is. He knows his character. He knows his nature. He knows what he does and what he is up to in the world. And so Jonah then flees for Tarshish. And when he flees, as I just said, he prays, right? Because he's swallowed up by this fish. And so he prays and he cries out, cries out to God to receive mercy from God when he's in the belly of this fish. And so Jonah finds himself fleeing and now he is actually the one that is in need of God's mercy and he receives God's mercy. God has the fish spit him out and now... Here, Jonah is angry because God has extended his same mercy to others. So Jonah has a sort of amnesia, we could say. I would call it mercy amnesia, that he actually has forgotten that he, just a short time ago, was in need of mercy, and the very mercy that he was given by God, he is now protesting that, God, how dare you, God? How could you do this? And the, the language in the Hebrew that Jonah is actually, the, the emotion that is coming out there is actually Jonah is expressing that he believes that God is evil for what he's done. That he's so upset that, God, how could you extend your mercy to the Ninevites? I am so appalled by this that I actually think you're evil. And so we see that Jonah is filled with anger because God would extend his mercy to Gentile people. If you don't know what a Gentile is, a Gentile is someone who is not ethnically Jewish. And so all of the people in Nineveh are Gentiles. They're not ethnically Jewish. And so Jonah is protesting, God, how could you extend your mercy to non-Israelite people? 
what we see is that Jonah actually welcomes salvation for himself, but doesn't welcome salvation for his enemies. The heart of Jonah's anger here is actually fueled by his self-righteousness, though, which comes to our first point, the toxin of self-righteousness. See, Jonah's self-righteousness actually made him believe that he was more deserving of God's mercy than the Ninevites. And self-righteousness flows out of pride. And Jonah is actually so prideful that he says, God, you're wrong. Like, I am right. My, my posture in this is correct, and you are wrong. So wrong that I actually think that you might be evil for what you've done. And that's hard, that's hard for us to understand, right? It's like, man, Jonah, Jonah, like, this dude's a prophet, and he is using language towards God that he thinks that God's evil for what he's done. And here's what we have to understand about Jonah. This is very important. We have to understand that Jonah's self-righteousness is intricately tethered to his idolatry. And his idolatry is really, it, it's his ethnocentrism and it's his nationalism. It is that he believes that somehow being an Israelite, God's chosen people, the people of Israel, somehow he has a superiority over those who are not ethnically Jewish. And so Jonah's idolatry is tethered to his self-righteousness, but it's flowing out of an ethnocentrism and a nationalism. And here's the problem. Not only is the idolatry the problem, but what continues to fuel this self-righteousness is that Jonah has forgotten he hasn't only had mercy amnesia and forgotten about the mercy that he's received, but Jonah has actually forgotten how he got his position with God and why he has his position with God. Specifically, how he got his position with God, how as an Israelite he has this position of God, he is confused and he actually thinks it's about his ethnicity and his race. That is not how Israel became the chosen people of God. It was never about their race. It was always about God's grace. And so the problem that Jonah has is he forgot even how he has this position before God as one of God's chosen people as a member of the covenant community. Is that he thinks that it's because of his ethnicity and it's not. It's about God's grace. The other problem is that he has forgotten why. Why is Israel and Jonah, why are they the chosen people of God? You see, God did not choose Israel to bless them for their own sake. God chose Israel and blessed Israel for the sake of the nations, for the sake of the world. Israel was chosen, Jonah as well, they were chosen as a vehicle of rescue for the nations. That if they lived this way, that the surrounding nations that do not know God would actually look at the way that Israel lives. They would see what God is like and they would be attracted to it. And out of being attracted to it, they would say, I want in on that. I want to be grafted into the covenant community to the people of God. See, Israel in and of itself were supposed to be a missional people with a missional identity. They were, they were commanded by God to be a kingdom of priests. And what priests did in the Old Testament is priests mediated God's blessing to the nations. 
And so God has now said, as an Israelite, you are to be a kingdom of priests. You are to mediate my blessings to the nations so that they might be grafted in to my people and know that I am the one true God, Yahweh. So this happens, right? This happens. Nineveh is not a part of Israel. They're Gentiles who are not ethnically Jewish, and they hear a horrible sermon, five words, but they repent, and they want to be grafted into the people of God. God's very purposes for the world. And now you have Jonah who sees that there's these people from the outside that God has grafted in and he's livid. He's livid. It makes no sense. But he had forgotten. He not only had forgotten the mercy that he had been given, but he forgot how he had his position with God and he forgot why he had his position with God. And what we see is that self-righteousness is a toxin in Jonah's system that hinders his ability to see. He can't see properly. And what he needs is he needs God to awaken him to his issues, to his sin, and ultimately to rid him of the toxin of self-righteousness that's in his heart. But here's the thing. We're like Jonah. We are similar to Jonah. Self-righteousness makes us believe that we're better than other people. And when we believe that we're better than other people, we look down on them, right? We judge them. We condemn them. We dissociate with people. We kind of ostracize them. And this is not just in the church. Like oftentimes when we talk about self-righteousness, it's Man, these Christians, they're super legalistic and moralistic, and they're crazy self-righteous, and I don't want to be a part of the church because they're self-righteous. Self-righteousness is literally the condition of the human heart. There's a, uh, a social psychologist who's not a Christian. Um, I forget his name. I think it's Jonathan Haight or something. Um, not Haight like H-A-T-E. That would be ironic. Um, but uh, he says that self-righteousness is the condition of every human, that it's a normal condition. And it flows out of obviously having a sinful heart. But um, this happens outside of the church. Like, here's a few examples. Education. How many people have you encountered, maybe even yourself, that looks down upon other people for education? That could be for their lack of education, that could be for maybe you have a master's degree or a PhD. Or actually, what, what happens oftentimes is your kids. Oh, you're, you send your kids to the, you homeschool. Oh, you send your kids to this school, right? And all of a sudden, you start to judge people. It's like, oh, homeschooling? No, that's not real schooling. You know, oh, you send your kids to that public school. You, you know, this public school, they're not going to get a good, good education, right? You start to judge, right? We see it with education. We see it with socioeconomic class, right? Those who have, those who, have, who don't have. Where you live, because oftentimes you start to look down upon other people. How about politics, political parties? This doesn't happen ever, right? No. Parenting, another one. Oh, you parent that way. Oh, you let your kids co-sleep in the bed with you. Oh, you know, your kids are going to be messed up when they get old. And oh, you know, this, that, the other. There's all these parenting styles, whether you do attachment parenting or whether you do baby-wise, or there's all these, all these parenting I never read a book on parenting, but I'm a parent, but I, uh, I've learned all this from 
people, uh, you know, telling me. Um, or the environment. You know, you're not, you're not green enough, and you don't care about the environment enough, and, you know, you don't drive an electric car. You only drive a hybrid car, and that's not good enough, you know? Or what about our American citizenship, right? That's a touchier one, where we're U.S.-born citizens, if you are, where you actually start to think that you're better, of those, better than those who are born outside of our country. All of those flow from self-righteousness. And it's not just in the church. We see it in culture. We see it around us. And a few years ago, uh, just a little window into my own self-righteousness. A few years ago, um, well, actually, I guess it was more than a few years ago. I'd have to ask my wife for the exact date. It was probably more like eight years ago. But um, so before my wife and I started dating, big surprise, she had another boyfriend. And uh, so now he's her ex, just to clarify that. <clears throat> yes, we... Yeah, we're together. Um, <laughs> she does not have another boyfriend. Uh, so her ex-boyfriend, um, before I came to faith, I hated this dude. Like, I hated this dude. And there's a number of reasons why, but um, stuff before, I knew him before they started dating. Then uh, when they were dating, he did some pretty sketchy stuff. He hurt my wife. So then that causes some more hatred, right? hardness of heart towards this guy. And then my wife and I start dating, and this dude's a little weasel. And he starts trying to talk to her and send her messages, and I'm like, man, I already hated this dude. Now I really hate this dude, right? He's trying to, like, win her back. We're dating. So um, you know how it is when you have an ex or your significant other has an ex? Like, you never want to run into him anywhere. You don't. Mo you know, it's just there's a lot of stuff there. Well, that was the case. I never wanted to see this dude because I knew I, was, I knew I hated this guy. So I come to faith. My wife and I get married. We're attending Redemption Tempe, right? You know where this is going. About two years into our marriage, uh, we attend uh, an event on a Wednesday evening. Uh, we used to do something called First Wednesday where we look at kind of the gospel and culture. And um, I don't remember anything about that night. I have a very good memory, but... We walk in, we sit down to eat, my wife's sitting on my right, and I look over, I always kind of look around, see who's in the room. I look over and about 40 feet to my left, not up, diagonal, not behind me, literally directly to my left is this dude. And he's sitting at my church. I was, my blood was boiling. Like I was so mad that I don't remember anything about that night, except I remember leaning over to Marika, and I was like, oh my gosh. And from there, I was furious. And the feelings of self-righteousness started to come out. I started to see how ugly that is. This guy has no right to be here. This is my church. This is my God. This dude's not even a Christian. What's he doing here? Right? He's interfering with my social circle. These are my friends, my people. Don't start to try to infiltrate and be a weasel like you did when we were dating, right? And so I leave. We leave that night. I didn't even talk to anybody. Usually I'm like the social guy talking to everybody. I just bulleted out. And I get home. My wife and I are talking, and I'm just like, I can't believe it. I'm, I am furious. And that takes a lot for me. I'm, I'm a pretty, like, calm, collected guy. And... 
what the Lord started to do over that week, um, the Holy Spirit started to con- convict me, right? That who was I to think that he had no right to be there? I had the same mercy amnesia that Jonah had, right? Is that uh, I wasn't always a Christian. And when I used to know this guy and hated him, I wasn't a Christian. God saves me. I receive mercy. I'm a part of this church where the gospel is being proclaimed. This dude who doesn't know Jesus shows up. I should be rejoicing. And instead, I am bitter, angry, so much so that I I don't even hear anything that night. All I'm thinking of is, man, I want to go over there and lay hands on him in an ungodly way, right? Not to pray for him. And uh, long story short, God convicted me and showed me, John, this is sinful. Your posture of self-righteousness is so unhealthy and sinful. And so this guy, you know, no surprise because he was kind of a weasel when, you know, we started dating. He had reached out to me on Facebook multiple times. Friend requested me. Well, what do you think I did? Denied, denied. I denied every one of his friend requests, right? I didn't want him to see into my life. Well, what I did, I talked to my wife. Hey, I really feel convicted by this. I don't want to be friends with this guy, but I need to send him a message and let him know, hey, man, I've harbored hatred in my heart towards you for years, and um, that's wrong. Will you forgive me? And honestly, it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do, but I did it. And um, yeah, it was, it was painful. Um, but that kind of self-righteousness is exactly what Jonah has going on here, except Jonah's is not as much at a personal level as it is at a national level. And so my question for us this morning is, what are the things in your life that you're self-righteous about? Who are the people in your life that you look down on and judge? Let's continue here. Let's pick up in verse 5. We'll read verses 5 through 11 here just to kind of get the summary. There's a lot going on. Jonah, uh, after he cries out to the Lord, Jonah went outside of the city and sat to the east of the city and he made a little booth for himself there. He sat under the booth uh, in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might shade him and, and put shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm, and the worm attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God then appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry? For the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and... Also much cattle. (laughs) So, 
Like I said, the book ends very abruptly, which we'll get to here in a minute. But what we see in these verses is our second point this morning is that we see the patience and pursuit of God's compassion. We see that God is compassionate with Jonah and Nineveh and not just the people in Nineveh, but also the animals in Nineveh. And in his compassion, he is patient and he pursues. God's compassion always moves towards us, and it is not because of anything that we've done. Neither did Jonah or Nineveh do anything for God to pursue them. It was out of his compassion. It is his very nature. It is his character. Going back to his self-revelation in Exodus 34 that Jonah quotes, God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And because of that, he pursues people. See, throughout the entire book of Jonah, these four chapters, Jonah is actually the chief recipient of God's pursuit and patience. I often think of Jonah as um, like a disobedient child who has a temper tantrum and never listens and ignores. That's kind of the picture that we get in Jonah. Like he disobeys God in the beginning. He rebels against God. Then when God uh, redeems him and has mercy on him, then he has a temper tantrum and he even ignores God. God even asks him in verse four, do you do well to do angry? And notice Jonah doesn't even answer him. Like he ignores God. And so I, I always think of Jonah as like this disobedient child and God being the good father who's patient, right? So in verse 5, we'll go back up here to verse 5. Jonah goes outside of the city, right? God relents of the judgment, and now Jonah goes outside of the city. And the reason why he goes outside of the city is because he cannot accept that God would have mercy on this city. And so what does he do? He makes a little hut. He builds a little uh, booth, as it says, um, and he sits under it. And he sits under it and just waits He's waiting and hoping that God will change his decision and his position. He wants God to bring judgment. He is hungry for justice on these people. But God is compassionate and he's patient with Jonah. Like a good father. So what does he do? He pursues Jonah. And now in the next verses 6 through 10, we specifically see God's compassion for Jonah. And we see his compassion for Jonah as God appoints three things, which are, seem weird, right? God appoints some random plant. Commentators have various views on what the plant is. They, many of them have kind of landed on it's a castor oil plant, and so it's a large plant. But God appoints this plant out of his compassion for Jonah so that it would shade him. But that lasted for one day. And then now God appoints a worm to come and eat the plant, and the plant withers. And now Jonah's angry, so angry that he wants to die, Right? He wants to die over this plant. And then God appoints this east wind, kind of similar to the Santa Ana winds in California, this hot wind, and then Jonah gets a gnarly sunburn, essentially. That's what happens, right? And what we see is that all three of these things that might seem odd to us are actually flowing out of God's compassion for Jonah. Because what he's trying to do is awaken Jonah and get his attention to help him to see his issues. God's God's saying, Jonah, you have issues. And so he sends each one of these things to to draw Jonah closer to him and to get Jonah to hopefully see a window into his heart, a window into the hatred towards his enemies that he's having. And so as God shows compassion for Jonah, he wants to know, Jonah, will you have compassion on the people that I love? 
But Jonah doesn't want any of it because he's so angry. And his anger is actually far more than just anger. It's now turned to bitterness. And bitterness, as we know, actually eats us alive. So much so that Jonah's bitterness makes him want to die. And so Jonah actually thinks that what God has done is absurd here. But what God is doing in these verses, verses 6 through 11, is God is actually flipping it on Jonah. And God's saying, Jonah, you think that I'm absurd for showing mercy on these people. Let me show you the real absurdity. Your care for this plant. If you look at verse 10, And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night, and it perished in a night. Nor, and, and, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons. And so what God is saying is, here's the real absurdity, Jonah. You care more about a plant that you did nothing for and nothing about, and you care more about this plant than the people in Nineveh. That you have hatred for an entire population, 120,000 people, you have hatred in your heart for them, and you care more about a plant than for these people. And you actually rejoiced over the plant. And so if you look here uh, in verse 7, it says that when the plant sprung, or verse 6, it says that when the plant sprung up, Jonah was exceedingly glad. Verse 1, when God relented, Jonah was exceedingly displeased. There's a contrast, right? Jonah is happier about this plant than he is about how God relented. And so what God is saying, yes, Jonah, the plant matters. I appointed the plant, but the people, the people, the people matter. Jonah, can you feel compassion for the people? And if you can't feel compassion for the people, that's why it ends so weird. What does it say? And also much cattle. This is a way for God to say in a, in a sort of comedic way, if you hate these people so much, can you at least feel compassion for the animals that will be saved in this? And so what we see is that Jonah's lack of compassion is actually fueled for his desire for justice. Is that Jonah wants justice for his enemies and mercy for himself. And we do this as well, just like the self-righteousness. My wife and I, we were talking the other day in the car, right? Aggressive drivers, Perfect example. How many times have you had someone uh, back where, where I'm from in Sun Devil Territory, uh, East Valley of Phoenix, there's a lot of people that drive lifted trucks. Um, that's a thing. I don't know if that's a Tucson thing down here, but lifted trucks. And oftentimes, not to uh, stereotype, but many times the aggressive drivers that get on your tail and cut you off will be in lifted trucks, almost like they're just going to run you off the road. Like how many times have we been the victim of an aggressive driver who's tailgating us, maybe gives us the bird, speeds by us, cuts us off, and almost hits us. And in that moment, we're like, gosh, I hope there's a highway patrolman right now. Like, it would, it would satisfy us so much if a, if a motorcycle cop, you know? And um, that actually has happened once. I know of that happening once. And it was like, it was the most satisfying thing, right? You're like, yes, yes, yes. But we want justice, right? But what about when we do that? right? We've all sped. We've all driven like jerks at times. I'm sh maybe I'm the only one, right? Um, but we've tailgated. We've probably cut someone off. And if we've ever been pulled over, we're hoping for mercy, 
right? We're hoping for mercy. And even when we're driving like that, we're looking all over to make sure like, oh yeah, we're not going to get caught. We don't want justice, right? It's, that's a small way to show like, we're the same. We want justice for our enemies. And we can't fault Jonah for this. I don't want to make Jonah sound like he's crazy, right? He's this crazy prophet that has it all wrong and doesn't under, understand God. Jonah gets God and he believes in God. But Jonah is an Israelite. And so we have to empathize a bit with him to try to put ourselves in his shoes. Is that he is a part of the chosen people of God and what he's trying to figure out in his mind, how do you reconcile the justice of God with the mercy of God? How do you reconcile these things, especially when it's not for God's covenant people of Israel, that it's for Gentiles? And so Jonah is trying to figure out how can God be merciful but also be a judge and have justice? Those two things seem like they don't go hand in hand. And so I don't want to fault him because he's just trying to make sense of it. The problem is Jonah never makes sense of the justice and mercy of God. He never gets to fully reconcile the justice and mercy of God. And in the book of Jonah, we don't see the justice and mercy of God reconciled either. And in Jonah's life, we don't see them reconciled either. And if we're honest, we struggle with this, right? Many of us may feel like God is unjust at times, where the, the injustice seems to prevail so much that we cry out, God, where are you? Where are you? You seem unjust, God. Or actually, sometimes if we're honest, we actually might feel like God is not good. God, if you're good, how could you have mercy on these people or these places because it actually seems like they're getting a free pass? And it's in these moments when we need to remember who God is, that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And because of that, God extends his mercy to the most unlikely. Now, the very reason why Jonah never gets to reconcile the justice and mercy of God in his life is because the only way that we can ever make sense of the justice and mercy of God and the only way that we can ever tru truly reconcile the justice and mercy of God is by the cross of Jesus Christ. The only way that we can make sense of justice and mercy is at the cross because what we see is justice and mercy at the same time on the cross with Jesus. We see that justice and mercy are two sides of the very same coin. And what we see on the cross is that God is just. And we see God's justice being poured out on the cross is that the wrath of God is put onto Jesus for the sins of the world. That there has to be justice. If God is truly good and just, he cannot let sin, evil, and injustice continue in the world. The injustice and the wrong have to be made right. There has to be justice. And so God carries out his justice on Jesus. So we see that there's justice, but what about the mercy? We reconcile God's justice with his mercy at the cross as well because God is merciful and he's loving. And so he poured out his justice and wrath on his son. He took it on himself because of his love and because of his mercy. 
is that every single one of us is, if God was fully just without mercy, every single one of us should be in that place. But God has mercy and he's loving. And so what he does is he takes it on himself so that for every single person who repents and believes, we receive mercy, mercy, mercy. It's like a coin toss for a sports game. If there's justice and mercy on both sides of the coin, for those of us who are in Christ, every single time the coin is tossed, it's mercy. It's mercy. It's mercy. It falls on mercy. Our last point that we'll see this morning comes from verse 11, which is that we will see ourselves in the mirror. Let's read verse 11 here one more time. Uh, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are no, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. And so we have to ask ourselves, why does Jonah end like this? Why so abruptly? Why with no resolution? We don't know if Jonah ever repents of his anger. It literally leaves him sitting under a tree with a gnarly sunburn, super ticked off, and then the book ends, and it's abrupt. We have no resolution. And here is the reason. It's a literary technique that the authors used. The reason why Jonah ends so abruptly is because it's actually meant to be a mirror that we hold up and see ourselves is that this is actually a mirror in which we see ourselves in Jonah. Tim Keller talks about this when he writes on Jonah chapter 4, and I think it's a really helpful just kind of picture. He says that Jonah chapter 4 is actually a bow and arrow aimed at Jonah. And when it's released, the arrow's released at Jonah, Jonah actually vanishes, and the arrow actually is pointing at us is that this is actually pointing at us. And so the question that I have for us, two questions this morning, as we see Jonah in us, that there is a Jonah in all of us, who are you angry at? And who is God calling you to forgive? You see, oftentimes we don't think that we have enemies. That's a pretty strong word, right? But we all have some sort of enemies. We have bitterness harbored in our hearts towards someone. We have anger that is unresolved in our hearts towards someone. Jonah's was national. Ours will tend to be much more personal. Maybe when I ask those questions, you know immediately. But maybe you need to examine your heart to figure out who, who is it that I'm, anger at, that I'm angry with and bitter towards? Who is it that God's calling me to forgive? And so there's a couple helpful questions to help kind of navigate your heart. Who has hurt you in the past? Who's wounded you or maybe even physically harmed you? Who have you been avoiding intentionally? Right? Those questions can help us to, to figure out some of those things that maybe we're harboring. But for many of us, We've been sinned against. And for some of you, maybe it's been at school. And maybe it's been years removed, but maybe you were bullied in high school and you've lived with the long-lasting effects of being bullied and you hate the people that bullied you. Maybe it's a spouse who ignores you and doesn't listen to your wishes and your desires. Maybe a loved one struggles with addiction 
and it's a chronic issue that you have to navigate. Maybe your significant other has cheated on you. Or maybe your father abandoned you and you grew up without a dad. Maybe someone has actually taken the life of one of your family members and now you live with deep pain and loss. Maybe some of you have a grown child who's now an adult and who's gone wayward and has stolen from you and has broken your trust. Maybe it's a coworker who slandered you and ruined your reputation at work. For some of you, maybe you've been abused. See, these are all scenarios and they can go on and on and on because we have all been sinned against. And when God calls us to forgive, forgiveness is very difficult. It's not a snap of the fingers and someone is forgiven. Forgiveness is a journey. And it takes time, but as we forgive, it actually brings freedom and it brings healing to us. And so forgiveness is on us. Reconciliation involves the other person, but God is calling us to forgiveness. And this happens in our hearts. When we actually refuse to make someone pay for the wrong that they've done, and we absorb the pain that's been done to us. And when talking about forgiveness, it's really important that we mention this and that I say this. Because forgiveness doesn't mean that you don't have boundaries, right? It would be foolish for me to say, hey, we all need to go forgive, and there's no boundaries. Some of us have actually been abused. Some of us have had horrific things take place. And forgiveness doesn't mean you don't have boundaries. You actually need to keep boundaries for your own safety, health, and protection. And so as we close this morning and as we see ourselves in Jonah, and as Jonah 4 is a mirror for us, we have to wrestle with the question and the reality of are we okay with the fact that God loves our enemies and has mercy on them? And are we willing to love our enemies as well? You can go ahead and close your Bibles. See, as we close this morning, what we need to do is we all have to admit and acknowledge that forgiveness and loving our enemies is incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult, but what it reveals is it actually reveals our need for Jesus reveals our need for Jesus. And what we see in Jesus is that we see that Jesus is the better Jonah. Jesus is the better Jonah. And Jesus did not go outside the city to sit and wait for its condemnation like Jonah did. What Jesus did is Jesus willingly went outside the city to Golgotha, where he would be killed. Where he would be killed and put to death. And in his death, we see that Jesus now gives us the ability to love our enemies because Jesus is the one that went to the cross for his enemies. He absorbed their pain so that they could be forgiven and then be people who absorb pain as well so that the watching world would see what God is like through his people, that we could be a pain-absorbing people because of the cross of Christ, that Jesus absorbed our pain and forgave us and, for, and forgave us. And in that, now we can be a pain-absorbing people that demonstrate to the watching world who God is like. So Jesus is the one that enables us to love our enemies. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Redemption Tucson. Thank you for these people, Lord, that are here. 
Father, I thank you for the good work that you are doing here in the city of Tucson, Lord, as Redemption Tucson gets to participate. Father, I thank you that you have given us the ability to love our enemies, the ability to forgive, Father, because of the cross. Lord, as we see Jonah, Lord, I'm thankful for this little short book as it gives us a window not only into Jonah's heart, but also into our own hearts. And so, Lord, I pray that you would impress upon us by the power of your Spirit, Lord, who you are, that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you are the God who pursues, Lord, that you are patient with us even when we run away. And we thank you for your mercy. But at the same time, Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is just, that you are the God of justice, Lord, with so much injustice around. Lord, we thank you for the hope of the gospel. And Lord, we know that one day you will come back to make all things new. It's in your name. Amen.